His name is Heston Blumenthal. He is one of the most inquisitive and creative chefs on the planet, with a knowledge of food quite unlike anyone else. And believe it or not, Heston's famous restaurant, The Fat Duck, boasted the best restaurant in the world many times over, is now 25 years old. To celebrate, Heston is releasing a special 25th anniversary series of menus full of classic dishes reinvented and brand new creations. And on this podcast, we have a special treat for you. Over the next few shows, Heston is going to be taking us on a deep dive through these menus, revealing all the secrets behind the dishes and the stories behind their creation. So sit back, relax and take a seat at the world's most magical restaurant, The Fat Duck. Hello Heston, how are you doing? Hello, Jay. I'm very good. I was going to say I wish I was 25, but actually I don't. <laughs> 25 years? Is that, does that feel like it's gone quickly or slowly? I don't know, actually, because I suppose it depends on where I put my focus. It, it, if I think about all the things that I've done, you could say time sort of expanded, but at the same time, some moments feel like yesterday. I bet. And, and for a lot, and lot, I know we're going to talk about you know the 25th anniversary in a minute, but just for... Just for people out there who don't know, you know, the origins of it, I imagine people probably thought that you dropped down from Mars and decided to start a, a restaurant where everything was incredibly creative and really different and unusual. And that wasn't your ambition in the first place at all, was it, when you first took the keys to that little small place in Bray? No, I had no idea. When I opened the Duck in 1995, the 16th of August was the opening. Uh, we took the keys in, in May. We did the refurb ourselves, all done on a big shoestring i had a couple of friends take time off work to help me from the painting to the local uh ironmonger that made the chairs they were like 45 pound a chair and i just wanted a little bistro where you could come in and have a pint of beer and a pate or a glass of wine and some oysters or so, you know something like that uh, i had a handful of recipes that i developed um at home one of them being triple cooked chips I had no idea I was going to go down this path, this journey into the world of the senses and emotions created by, by food. And in fact, you know, musicians express their emotions through music and artists through painting and writers through writing and you know, broadcasters through broadcasting. I'd happened to use food as my, as my tool. Um, and I didn't realise at the time that what made this world so challenging and so exciting was the fact that flavor perception is the most complex thing the human body does. We consume the planet. Um, and therefore, our emotional relationship with food and cooking and eating is essentially what made us human. So it's such a big subject. It goes into so many walks of life. So I opened with steak and triple cooked chips, for example. And when I was a kid, I never, I never thought well, I'm going to be a chef. And we used to go to Cornwall for our holidays every year. Uh, my height of gastronomic um, pleasure was sitting in the open boot of my old man's car with my sister wrapped in a towel, wet after coming out of the sea on the top of the edge of a cliff, eating a Cornish pasty from a brown paper bag. Still have wonderful memories of that. But I didn't know what an oyster looked like. I'd never, I mean, lobster, I what the hell was that? Uh, my folks had never been to a Michelin-starred restaurant. In fact, the first Michelin-starred restaurant, I think, was the Rue Brothers in 1974 with a Gavroche. So this was, I was born in the 60s, grew up in England in the 70s. And as I said, Cornwall was our holiday, our holiday destination every year. 
So I didn't grow up in a culture of gastronomy. My parents didn't. Then one year, we went to France for a holiday. And I was a teenager, and my dad had read about this restaurant, uh, which had three Michelin stars, which happens to be 15 minutes from, from here, from where I live now. And I sat outside this restaurant with my sister and my mum and dad, under these olive trees on a terrace outside this wonderful old farmhouse in this incredible valley with this, this bauxite cliffs that were lit up at night. And I remember the noise of the crickets filled the air and the, this intoxicating smell of lavender. And the sommelier had a handlebar moustache and a big leather apron with this Tastavan metal wine tasting cut round his neck. And the wine list was like a billboard and the cheese trolley was the size of a chariot. They were pouring sauces into souffles and carving leather lamb at the table. I fell down a rabbit hole into a multi-sensory wonderland. And I thought at the time, this is it. That is when cooking and eating got under my skin and in my blood. It was a real pivotal moment in my life. So from then, I just, I read and I cooked and I read and I cooked and I spent time with butchers and I went fishing with, 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 with fishermen and went to farms and I just, everything that was, that was involved in, 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 in ingredients and cooking. And I bought cookbooks from the great French chefs. Then I thought, you could have 20 chefs cookbooks and they'd all have vanilla ice cream recipes. But the recipes would all be different. Some would use single cream, whipping cream, double cream, milk, whole eggs, egg yolks, sugar, glucose, honey. Do they know why they're using these different ingredients in different ratios? Or is that just what they were told? So I started to get, I started questioning and questioning and questioning. It was the first time in my life that I was really super hyper-focused and interested on so, in something. Then I read Harold's book in the mid 80s when he said brownie meat doesn't keep in the juices. And I thought, my God, hang on a second. Is this true? And then I realized, yes, it's true. And it's obvious but only when he said it to me. So that's when I started to question everything. And from then, I started on this journey of, of planet Heston, planet food, planet eating and planet emotion. So when I opened the dark, I'd, 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 I'd had my, I developed triple cooked chips probably in 1992, opened the duck in 95. And the first menu, 16th of August, the starters, there were about five starters, five, six starters, five, six main courses, four or five desserts. The desserts were £2.50. I don't think you can get a sip of water in the duck now for £2.50. <laughs> and, and the main course, I remember one main course being just tipping the £10 uh, mark. And there was me and a pot washer in the kitchen, a gas supply system that was barely good enough for a domestic kitchen, no pressure. So trying to bring a, a big pan of water to the boil to boil some green beans was very difficult. And if you put a whole handful of cold green beans in, the water would come off the boil and it would sit in this sort of semi-hot water and the beans would discolour. But all of these things, all of the problems with this poorly equipped kitchen drove me to find out the why. Why do beans, green beans lose their color when you cook them? And why do eggs make custard curdle or scramble if you heat them too much? All of, many of the questions like this, because only when you have a problem can you have the potential to find a solution. So this little, tiny, pokey, ill-equipped kitchen, the fat duck, shaped me probably more as much as any human being on this planet. And then 
from there, I little did I know, you know, probably, I suppose then 97, 98, I put a dish on the menu with crab ice cream, crab risotto, crab ice cream. We'll talk about that later. But I realized just by changing the name, you can change people's perception of a dish. If you call a savory, um, let's say a smoked salmon frozen mousse, if you called it smoked salmon ice cream, people would perceive it to be more salty because they expect ice cream, which is sweet. So if you expect sweet and get salt, the contrast makes it perceivably more salty. Um, but it, in 95, it was this bistro. That, that's what I wanted, a simple bistro, but simple food done really well. Uh, and then everything changed. And it did. And I think the adventures that you've been on over the past 25 years are are so varied. And as you say, you know, it genuinely has changed the way the world looks at food, especially in the culinary world. It is absolutely remarkable. And now on 25 years down the road, you're going to be creating a special year of sort of food moments and events and thoughts to um, to celebrate this, to honour this, and also to, as always, continue pushing forward as you always do. And what we're going to be doing on this podcast is you're going to be talking me and all of our listeners through some of the things that you could get if you came along this year to sit in the Fat Duck. So first of all, tell me about this this special year. What's happening in this 25th anniversary year? Well, there's many things which I can touch on in, in, in later podcasts we do. But for now, if we just look at the Fat Duck and the menu, we're doing an anthology. So there's think about these as, as little stories. Four volumes and a Christmas one. So the four volumes will be a mixture of current dishes some some new things not necessarily just dishes i don't want to give too much away but new exciting things an evolution of the storytelling and the nostalgic personalized nostalgic moments that we've been working so hard on and bringing back some of the classics some of the dishes that really did change the world of of, of gastronomy and eating i wasn't aware now i'm now i'm aware of it and actually i can i can say it without thinking i'm sounding conceited Whereas before, I, could do, I, I had no idea, no, no idea whatsoever. So bringing those dishes back and then, and then putting what we know and what I know now, maybe that I didn't know 15 years ago, to then just refine and tweak them. And more importantly, or as importantly, the storytelling around it. You know, when you tell a story around an object, it's a bit like when we did the Mindful Raisin. You know, you eat a raisin, you think about the family that's harvested this wonderful little raisin and they hand pick them and they've got an old stepladder that came from their grandmother that they always use this stepladder but the third step's a little bit creaky and they could fall off but they kept using it and they'd hand pick these grapes taking great care to make sure the stem was taken out without ripping the skin and they'd lay them on these straw mats and the straw came from a local field that was you know that was part family and you know they build this story around that that little raisin then becomes something really more magical so the storytelling around the menu and around the dishes is something that we're putting a lot of focus on as well because what I want ultimately, I realize that I'm in the business of uh, emotion. As most people are, ultimately it's emotion that drives our decisions in life. And that wonderment, one, two of the most precious gifts a human being has, I think, is memory and imagination and when you use memory and imagination together and you have a group of people that can share that belief that's created there they can then go make stuff and thanks to memory and imagination and the ability to engineer and make stuff 
we've got houses and telephones and televisions and cars and aeroplanes and space travel and you know music and language and all the incredible things that human beings have created so i want without pointing the fingers at people and telling them it's not about trying to trick people it's about surprise it's about if if people if i could help more people to become more aware of, of their relationship with their outside world to become more aware that where they can become curious and that curiosity can lead to discovery and discovery can lead to adventure and playfulness and you and and life's sort of life's rich potential for discovery discovering things and you know our whole world can become more rich time can expand that way um, and so this is the sort of thing we really want to focus on now for, the, for, for this year. At the same time, going back and celebrating the things that, that I gave the world of gastronomy. Where, you know, from the whole multi-sensory stuff to, to the releasing smells at the table through dry ice, the use of liquid nitrogen, the use of sound, uh, playing with nostalgia, storytelling, uh, flavour pairing, flavour encapsulation, there's many, many things that now we've simplified the menus in the sense that before they were up to 20 courses, we've reduced them. It was like four or five hours of eating. I think we're now getting the eating time down to maybe two and a half hours and focusing on less courses, but more attention can be put on each course and the storytelling and the interactive moments around those dishes. So people can have that level of curiosity and discover new things for themselves and go on some wonderfully adventurous journey. And on this podcast, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be allowing us to eat some of these fat duck treats with our ears. We're going to be sitting here and you're going to delve us inside some of the special things that are going to be appearing on these new menus and some of the uh, great stories behind them and some of the secrets that go into making them over the next few podcasts. So where are we going to start our dining experience today, Heston? Okay, so the first um, the first part of the menu is actually four... Uh, small dishes a, a flurry let's call it a flurry uh, and the first one is the nitro poached green tea and lime mousse first off these four things are literally one or two mouthfuls of food and they'll they'll come thick and fast and the purpose of them well apart from being delicious apart from having a a wonderful sort of theatrical element to them and, and a curtain raising um, element of surprise, which on one of the, I can't give away all of it because you, because it would give away to the people that are coming to the restaurant. But I'll, I'll allude to it. Um, there is also designed to stimulate uh, the taste buds, wet the appetite, be mouth watering. So mouth watering. Remember the opal fruits advert made to make your mouth water. There are two things that make your mouth water, which produces saliva. One is acidity and one is chewing. So these dishes are designed to stimulate the appetite, wet the appetite and create a mouth watering sort of preparation for, for, the, for the meal to, to follow. So the first one in this flurry is the nitro poached green tea and lime mousse. And I remember when I, I um, brought liquid nitrogen into the restaurant world in the mid late 90s caused a stink now a lot of these things that we're doing now i think people it's important to realize that 25 years ago you know the world of food in britain 
has changed so much. What's happened to British gastronomy now is incredible, absolutely incredible. But in those days, liquid nitrogen, somebody in the newspaper said, oh my God, Heston, what is he doing? He's gonna blow up the restaurant. Well, that's liquid oxygen. Liquid nitrogen is super cold. It's minus 197 degrees centigrade. Do not drink it. It is not a food. It's very safe to use, but you don't drink it. You would not drink oil from a deep fat fryer at 197 degrees centigrade. So this is minus 100. So it's as cold as the oil in a fryer is hot. In fact, it's much safer as long as you just don't drink it. So use it as like a, a cooking technique. It's benefit, apart, it looks wonderful, but it freezes things so quickly. The ice crystals stay so small and smooth textured. So what I wanted to do was start the meal. I always used to find for me that if I clean my teeth too close to going out for dinner, I'd have this really strong residual menthol, minty menthol flavor in my mouth, which affected the beginning of my meal. So I wanted something to cleanse the palate, to just, and, and, and metaphorically, you know, break the ice. So at the table, you have a little pot, pot of liquid nitrogen. And we, we've done a whole range of cocktails with these flavors, but the first one was green tea and lime. Why? Because green tea has, is very high in polyphenols and has wonderful breath cleansing properties. In fact, I heard about this from an experiment done in Japan. And I just, just imagine, just visualize this. They got a lot of people to eat raw garlic. And then people in white coats with white hats and clipboards basically went down the line of people and got them to breathe on them. <laughs> and it was found that green tea had a very had a very powerful property of getting rid of that raw garlic smell. Polyphenols also have this slightly tannic dryness which then cleans the palate ready for the acidity. So you're getting a, a like a you know a, a new set of 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 sweet saliva. I know talking talking saliva doesn't necessarily sound uh, gastronomically delicious, but think about it as mouth watering. So there's the green tea. I wanted a a, a a mixture, a recipe that had no fat in it to begin with. Low sugar, no fat. Green tea, lime because it's really fragrant, and that brings wonderful acidity to help the mouth-watering effect, a little bit of vodka, tiny, only to um, to get the release of all the perfumed aromatic elements of, of the lime zest, lime juice, lime essential oil um, that we put into the mix. And this is, it, we made a sort of meringue, so just egg whites, and put it in a whipped cream bottle, a siphon, shake it up, and then squeeze it. So you imagine you've got like a little macaroon or a little ball of meringue. You squeeze it onto a spoon and you've got your little glass jar of, of uh, super cold nitrogen liquid sort of bubbling softly away with the vapor just bellowing, falling over the container. And then you just delicately drop this little light as air ball into the nitrogen for about 20 seconds. And you, you bathe it in, in nitrogen, just, just, just sort of marinate it with a, with a spoon. And it's quite, it's very important how long you poach it for because you want the outside to freeze and the inside to be soft and creamy it's really delicate and then put it on a like a porcelain spoon and then hand it to the diner and then they take it in one go now if they do it quickly enough with enough gusto and and, and excitement and confidence you get two jets of vapor coming out of your nostril and that has a nostalgic connection with me 
Well, my first memorable embarrassing moment as a kid. So we say, and, and, and what happens is if somebody gets this at the table, then they become the dragon. And, and that could lead to them getting a little extra something further down the line. So you sort of make a playful element to it as well. Puff the Magic Dragon. Now, Puff the Magic Dragon was my first school play. I wasn't in it, I played the cello. I could never play the cello. And there I was on stage with this cello, the same size, I was six or seven years old, same size as me probably. And I remember there was a load of mums in those plastic school chairs, you know, with the metal legs that clipped together. Quite close to the stage, I fell off. I fell off the stage oh. with the cello. With the cello as well? I was so embarrassed. So it's very, mem very memorable for me. And the song though, Puff the Magic Dragon, a lot of people thought it was to do with smoking marijuana, but it's not at all. It's about a little boy that has an imaginary friend, this dragon. And they travel the world with this dragon and they see pirate ships and they see mountains and volcanoes and all sorts of wonderful stuff. And then as the, as the little boy, I think Johnny Paper his name was, he grows up, the dragon dies because he's lost his childhood. And, it's, and, and the song's actually about keeping a childhood. So it's got some really nice story and connection between bit, bit behind that sort of, that first, that's the first element of the little flurry. I've been lucky enough to have some of those wonderful nitro poach treats. And I would say that for me, what they've always done brilliantly is they encapsulate kind of the whole fact that experience is when the first thing starts, it's wonderment. You're like, what is this? And then there is a, a little element of nervousness and fear. Because when you see that thing coming out, you think, God, what on earth is going on here? And you have to get over a little nervousness, a little boundary in your mind to be able to put them in your mouth. And the front of house staff and the fat duck are so wonderful because they remove all boundaries. Everything just feels inclusive and fun. And then when you put it in your mouth, there is just this burst of flavour and everyone's eyes I've seen do it do the same thing which is your eyes just open up wide and suddenly immediately in the space of that you know minute of that first course you are your mind has been shifted from trepidation uh, excitement whatever it may be and suddenly you're open in this playground to everything every experience after that is okay because you've just had the most magnificent wonderful and quite scary looking thing which turns out to be delightful from that point on it's kind of like you're, you're in a different world. You're in, you're in Willy Wonka's land and everything goes after that. And I think that's why it's so clever as a starter. On many levels, the, the actual term or the phrase um, icebreaker, mouthful of puffiness that explodes. But the effect that it has from such, you know, it's the invisible that makes the visible, so to speak. The effect that that has and it just sets in the whole inside of your mouth because it just comes alive it's like fireworks go on and you watch everyone else as well the most fun is watching the people around the table you know because people think about places you know i certainly do of of, of nice michelin starred restaurants as being very austere and somber places and sometimes i've been in the dark and i've seen people coming in in that slightly serious way but after that course it is impossible to be austere or somber or too serious everyone is giggling and laughing and watching each other with steam coming out of their noses it, it, it it's it's as you always say it makes people kids again but it really does it really does yes yeah. so that then that then that gets very swiftly followed up by a macaroon so you got two meringues sandwiching some cream in the middle i used to make a beetroot risotto and i found out that beetroot juice there's some compounds in beetroot juice that when you whisk the juice these compounds help create an emulsion and a foam. When you whisk them, it really froths up. You get wonderful moussey foam, natural moussey foam to it. So we take beetroot juice and we, we whisk it up and put it in a vacuum oven um, in little semi-spherical molds. So the vacuum oven helps, you can pull, if you pull too much vacuum on it, 
it pulls it up like a souffle and the bubbles will burst, but you just enough vacuum to get the bubbles to be big. So imagine like an aero bar, but with bigger bubbles. And then we make a horseradish cream. So you've, with, with, it's got some vinegar in it, so you've got the acidity from the vinegar, mouth-watering, got this wonderful earthy lightness and sweetness from the beetroot. It just melts in your mouth. But the horseradish is interesting because horseradish and mustard, which will be in a course to follow, they affect something called the trigeminal nerve, which is the nerve that runs across your, uh, almost like sort of not quite from ear to ear, but it runs across the, um, your face, under your eyes, and across the bridge of your nose. So you know that feeling when you smell horseradish or eat too much wasabi and you want to cry and you feel it goes going straight up, right up your nostrils. That's the activation of the trigeminal nerve which is a slightly different thing to taste, but it's there. But what that does is it stimulates, when you put it in your mouth, that connection with the trigeminal nerve, it's really stimulating the taste receptors in your tongue. So it has this wonderful effect at, you know, it's like preparing your mouth for, right, oh yes, I can't wait. So you have this incredible lightness. They're beautiful little things. This is sort of deep scarlet, light as air, um, beetroot meringue sandwiching this really delicate lightly acidulated horseradish cream there's a memory i have of filming with you which i don't know if you remember but it was when we were trying to design well you were trying to design the menu for tim peak in space we wanted to experience what different spices and flavors were like when you were in zero gravity so do you remember we stuck you on a board uh, and turned you completely upside down and then you decided to eat uh, wasabi and do you remember you almost killed you <laughs> Do I remember? I can remember my face puffing. It was like somebody was, my face had turned into a balloon and somebody was puffing up. <laughs> Thanks, Jade. I, yes, I remember. I remember all the, everything running to my eyeballs. And then you tried to drink to get rid of it and you were still upside down. You almost drowned yourself on top of it. Was that, please don't try this at home, everyone. <laughs> yes, I remember that very clearly. Anyway, the wonderful little scarlet beetroot uh, macaroons. I'm, are not like that but they are amazing and interesting as you were saying them i felt my mouth watering when you were talking about the horseradish uh filling in the middle and what a wonderful i mean talk about things you do not expect to be eating in any kind of restaurant that is such a wonderful combination of things to put together in such an unexpected way and the textural changes between it i know is something that you've always played around with a lot but it it is quite remarkable in the mouth yeah it really and and and, and again it just really what we need what we're going to do through this process is is help the little story around it so so they, it again it's what's so wonderful and also sometimes frustrating about about flavor perception is there's so many things to look for somebody you might look so much at the color somebody says what does this taste like and you might be looking for salt or pepper and in looking for salt and pepper you might not notice the bitterness or you might not notice the temperature you can't look at everything at once because there's too much stuff to think about when you eat food it's so complex so with the little, each, there's going to be a, a little lovely little booklet which will have a little story around each dish that if you want to, you can have a little, just a little read up before the dish comes. You don't have to. Um, but it will highlight some of those things to look for. So if I say to you, God, just have a, when you eat this, think about how, how much your mouth is watering. But if you're having a discussion, which you might prefer to do anyway, if you're a discussion about what you did the day before with a friend, then you're not going to notice it because you won't be so aware. So it's creating that opportunity for awareness without, I don't want to be telling people what to do. It's not like an instructional eating process. It's just giving them the potential for, uh, for 
a new discovery for themselves. Oh, I never realised. Yeah. So next time I have horseradish, or next time I put some, I have some acidity in a, a dish, or I notice something with a bit of sourness, I notice that my mouth is watering a bit more. So then you just discovered a new thing in terms of your relationship with the outside world and your relationship with what you eat. So it makes eating a more enjoyable, richer experience, potentially. And that's also something that I think people don't possibly realise about the fat duck experience is that often you go to nice restaurants and, and, and the people serving you the food are very pleasant, but they're there to serve you the food. Whereas you and your guys put so much thought and effort into every single word spoken at the table, not in a, not in a robotic way, but you, have a de- you develop an amazing relationship with the person who's, who's, who's serving you in the fat duck because they're taking you on this journey. But every word you guys have poured over to make sure that you are using those words, as you said, which have power, to make sure that your brain and your mouth and your body is all in the right place to enjoy the experience. Yeah, I, you know, I realised that one of the things that I, I sort of ended up moving towards and creating, which I think was quite unique, was sort of shared moment so let's call an object an object can be a a plate or a food or a car an object can be a holiday an object can be christmas an object could be a picnic or birthday and you and i have gone on this journey together for years now when you have an object that everybody recognizes the object so let's call the object a picnic or christmas everybody recognizes the object there's Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. There's different, you know, when you have the object of Christmas within that, there's different elements to the Christmas tree. So we all share a connection with the, the same object, but we all have our own relationship with that object in terms of our memory and what we like about it and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's incredible that ritualed, sort of rituals related to food that we all know of and we've experienced are wonderful opportunities to access our own warm nostalgic moments and share them with friends so you have this level of human connectivity and bonding which is which is really wonderful and incredibly important from an evolutionary point of view and and we're storytellers human beings are storytellers whether it's fairy tales or any form of story whether it's politics whether it's music whether it's gossip whether it's lies whether it's propaganda it they're all story with this history they're all stories it's such a important part of human existence and as food is the most after breathing drinking and eating is the most important thing we need to do along with sleeping to live if we don't breathe drink eat and sleep we can't do anything else the connection between food history storytelling communication emotion is everything so i've used food as my as my mechanism for storytelling and in fact in the front of house now we have we have a handful of designated trained storytellers they're called storytellers um so it's how you can guide people through through the journey of the experience without being judgmental there's no right or wrong to food and cooking and eating if you really love something well then you love it you know it's like when people say i want to make you a better version of you the best version or a better version of yourself how do i know what's a better version of you you're the only person that knows that so it's it's, it's having this opportunity for discovery i think which is which which is incredible so yeah the journey and the story around around the objects is 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 really uh, really important so what comes next after the uh, the beetroot 
so the next course is an orange and beetroot jelly. This little dish, two simple jellies. I had the idea for this. Now I have to be slightly cryptic about this because for people that haven't heard about it and people that haven't experienced it, I don't want to give it away. Um, but I came up with this idea and there was only two other ingredients that I thought I could do the same thing with of all the ingredients that exist. I'm sounding cryptic, but it's, it's for a reason. So these orange and beetroot jellies, very simple. I thought, well, I really want to serve this dish because it's an um, has an amazing effect, uh, amazing uh, potential, amazing potential for discovery and playfulness, and you know, just just a real kind of falling down the rabbit hole effect. But it's only two very small, literally one mouthfuls of jelly. This is before we did a tasting menu, and I thought I can't serve this as one course because it's too small. So this was one of the biggest catalysts for me to decide to do a tasting menu. I thought, if I did a menu for seven to 10 courses, this being one course is okay. But if it was part of a three course menu, in no way it's not okay. I ha I, I'll need to add stuff to it. But every time I thought of adding something to these two jellies, it took away from the whole purpose of the dish. And so that was that little, these two little jellies were the catalyst for the whole fat duck. I mean, which, le which then later became the fat duck journey story and they do look remarkable as well when you see them they come out on a little round white plate very small sort of little saucer size plate and just in front of you is a tiny square of well two different colored jellies and that's the that's the whole dish but it does yeah it's brilliant it is really good fun and great fun i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say what happens either because it's one of those ones where you love to watch people try it and uh that's one of the things you touched on it before that the that i realized the fat duck has that's that's I wouldn't say totally unique, but it's quite unique, is that you can see people that maybe are fat duck regulars and they get so much benefit from either their friends that they're dining with who haven't been before or other tables. There's a sense of ownership, you know. I know what I know. Let's see what your face is going to be like in a minute. <laughs> it, is, it is. It's like telling jokes to other people or passing on, yeah, little little fun games and things. Okay, so we can't reveal the secrets behind that one. But then, what? What? So, what's the next one that you can reveal the secrets behind? Red cabbage gazpacho. Now, when I put this on the menu again, it it had a sort of marmite element to it because purple, a purple liquid, is not certainly not then the colour that we were of, 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 of something we would normally drink or eat. And that came about from something I was playing around with years ago. We made a beetroot jelly. So when we were making the beet, when I say beetroot jelly, sorry, not like the, the orange beetroot jellies, which are gelatin I just spoke about, but pat de fruit. Now pat de fruit is like an opal fruit, but a posh one. You get them in smart restaurants. You have them in cubes with, with sugar crystals on the outside and then normally they're purple and orange. It's normally blackcurrant and apricot and there might be lime and, uh, and other, other fruits like this. And you basically put fruit juice, pectin, tartaric acid, sugar in a, in, a, in a pan and you boil it up to 120 something degrees with a thermometer. And then when you pour it out onto a sheet, it sets in a jelly. So you know those kids' sweets, they put them in rolls and you can roll out this jelly. It's the same sort of thing as that. Uh, and so I wanted to play, I was playing around with vegetable versions. What if you did one with carrots and you did one with beetroot? 
and we did one, the beetroot one, was that's when I discovered that the beetroot juice frothed up. And that then, years later, became an inspiration for the little uh, macaroons that I've just spoken about with the horseradish. So we made a carrot jelly, but with the tartaric, the acidity and the sweetness, it tasted like apricot. Because the colour and the sugar was enough to nudge you into, into thinking it's apricot, because you don't think it's going to be carrot, because in those days no one ever did the things like that with vegetables. We did one with beetroot, which tasted so, so much like blackcurrant. Crazy. One evening in the restaurant, um, Nigel, who's still with us, was looking after the front of house. And there's one of the last tables, and this lady on the table put this square of beetroot, sort of like a, you know, um, jelly, pat de fruit, in her mouth. And turned around, Nigel walked past, she said, oh, that's wonderful, what is it? He said, it's beetroot. She went, oh, that's disgusting. And he said, I'm only joking, it's blackcurrant. So with it still in the mouth, she went, oh, that's really rather nice, because I don't like beetroot. Just with the words, you can change your experience. Look at the power of, of the name of something. It's so powerful. Uh, and so that little feedback loops from, from, from diners like that over the years have played a major role in, in, in giving me inspiration for, for new ideas. So we then tried one with red cabbage and making a little pat de fruit with red, red cabbage juice, it stank when you boiled it up, it absolutely, <laughs> when it's raw state, it was interesting. But it absolutely, it went into that rotten cabbage drain, I don't know, <laughs> block drain. It was, it was horrible. But there was something about the, the freshly juiced cabbage that had something interesting about it. And it was very peppery. And then I found out that the pepper, you know, when you eat raw cabbage, you get a peppery note to it. It yeah. does taste peppery. I found out that it was mustard. It's mustard oils. It's a compound, it's a, mo a molecule that's in mustard. It's a mustard oil that naturally exists in the cabbage. And I love this, this, this initial, it, you, it loses that character, that punchiness and freshness after about half an hour of juicing. So I then played around with cabbage juice. I wondered if it could mustard, because I'd made a gazpacho of tomatoes before with mustard. It's, I wasn't, that, that's something that some other chefs have, uh, have done in the past as well. So that, I just I was playing around with it. So I thought, ah, oh, mustard oils in cabbage, mustard oils in mustard. Maybe let's play around making a gazpacho with the red cabbage. And uh, so I made it like a gazpacho with onions and tomatoes and, and other veg in there and some bread just to, to thicken it a bit and then macerate it and then strain it. But do it, do it relatively last minute, thicken it with a bit of mustard mayonnaise and mustard. And then I made a mustard ice cream. And it's a little beautiful bowl of lavender coloured gazpacho with this vanilla looking ice cream that is just little sort of flecked with mustard seeds. And at the time, it was very interesting. I learned a lot from that dish as well, because when, you, when people first saw it, they had to get over a bit like you said with the nitrogen. They had to get over the hurdle of, of being presented something that was wet, liquidy and purple. And so when people did that, their nudge was focused on the color, which they weren't used to. So when they, when regulars started to become regulars, each time they came in, it was like peeling off a layer of an onion. And they, they, the next time it doesn't, you've already experienced it once before. So you don't have the same barrier potentially. So you can get on with looking at other things in the dish because they're not so focused on the color. So that was a dish that showed me that, you know, it's very, 
I think lots of people in, in, in today's world have a sort of been there, done that, seen it, next, tick the box, want to move on. Not saying there's anything wrong with that. However, there is something that we're starving ourselves from. If we don't celebrate the beautiful potential of, our, of us changing, every human being changes. Every breath is different. We're not the, we're, we're not the same person we, we were 10 years ago. All the cells in our body change every eight years. All the, uh, the, the microbes in our, in, our, in our gut change every couple of weeks. So on a cellular level, we're not the same person. And we respond to life's experiences. You know, we, 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 we wake up, we go to work, we go on holiday, we see our friends, we do whatever. We interact with others and the world around us and all the energy that comes from sun and noise and everything that we experience and all of our thoughts and our memories. And then we sleep and we dream and then we reset and we go off again. So we're this such a complex machine, a human being, that is continually changing. If we don't embrace and celebrate that change, then I think we can starve ourselves from really wonderful opportunities in life. So there's also a benefit, discovering new things, but you can discover new things from the same object. Like listening to a song. Over 20 years you might have listened to the same song and then someone tells you a little story about the song and do you know what that song's about? And then you think, no, I never listened to it like that before. Now listen to, the, listen to it from a different perspective. It's like a new, a new song because you've changed. So it gave me the, the awareness of the importance and the value and the beautiful benefit of being able to become more aware that we can always discover new things in life. And that's obviously got mustard and it's got vinegar. And we finish the gazpacho, we make it just half an hour before. And just before, every in service, every 10 minutes, we juice red cabbage. Put it in a jug in the fridge and we just top it up so you get that extra little bit of fresh pungency. And I'm finished, I'm sounding like a Eurovision Song Contest judge. And that, Jay, finishes my votes for the uh, wetting the appetite flurry of first four dishes on the menu. And that is where we shall leave this for today. But we are going to be continuing your beautiful dining experience at the Fat Duck on our next Fat Duck 25th anniversary special, but uh, at the end of the flurry, we're going to leave you to have a small break in your food that you're eating with your ears and come back. But Heston, that was uh, that was wonderful. I didn't know half those things about those dishes, even though I've been lucky enough to try them a couple of times before. Um, and and just I hope anyone listening gets this, just a suggestion of just the depth of knowledge and passion and enthusiasm and research that's gone into every single one of these. And I think that's ultimately what this these series of menus is going to be celebrating. Yeah, it's almost like. There's a nurture, I don't know, it's almost like, I don't want to say that these dishes, are like, they're like living things. Living things that evolve and, and actually, you know, some of these dishes won't have been on the menu for years and then we brought them back and then, and then done work on them. So they still evolve and we've all evolved from when they were last on the menu. So it's a rediscovery, being able to revisit the journey with and through those dishes and then apply what you know any tweaks that that, that that we feel that could benefit from now. So that's where we should leave it for today. But do join us next week to continue your dining experience. Heston, thank you ever so much. That was a real delight. Uh, but for now, all that's left to say is goodbye, Heston. Goodbye, Jay. And goodbye, dear listeners. <laughs> <laughs>